Hello, everyone. Welcome back to From the Front Row, brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. My name is Steve Lansanya, and if this is your first time with us, welcome. We're a student-run podcast that talks about major issues in public health and how they're relevant to anyone, both in and out of the field of public health. Today, we're delighted to talk with Phyllis Meadows, who is a senior fellow at the Kresge Foundation's health program. As a senior fellow in the health program, Dr. Meadows engages in all levels of grant-making activity. Since joining the Kresge Foundation in 2009, she's advised the health team on the development of its overall strategic direction and provided leadership in the design and implementation of grant-making initiatives and projects. Dr. Meadows has led the Foundation's Emerging Leaders and Public Health Program, advises and supports the development of cross-team programming efforts with the Detroit Environment and Human Services Programs, Dr. Meadows' 30-year career spans the nursing, public health, academic, and philanthropic sectors. Welcome to the show, Dr. Meadows. Thank you. It's great to be here. So just to first touch on this, you know, we're seeing this huge realm of experience that you've got, so many different exciting areas. How did you get into the field of public health? How did you end up in your, your current role? Kind of talk us through that process, as it were. Wow, that's the long story, but I, I can tell you, I, I would love to start with a funny story because my background, I'm a nurse, and um, I ended up getting interviewed by the newspaper when I graduated from high school, and they asked me what kind of nurse did I want to be, and I said um, I wanted to be a community health nurse, and interestingly, I didn't know what that was. I, I made up that title in my head and it came to, to be, once I studied nursing, one of the tracks which you study in is public health and community health. And I literally fell in love with it. Um, and so I, my master's degree is in community health nursing, which includes public health. And my PhD is in applied sociology, which is really taking the research and trying to put it into practice. And I just ended up in public health by, by accident. I started off just like every nurse in the hospital. I ended up in community health nursing as a visiting nurse, went on to do other community health efforts. I worked in, in oncology, so home-based oncology care where we were administering uh, chemotherapy to cancer patients in the home. And I just loved being out there in the field in the, in the spaces where people were. And so my career just kept fo- unfolding in that way where I get these opportunities. So I went from actually from working with cancer patients in their homes to infant mortality reduction would be hugely from, you know, as you can conceptually see. And I hadn't worked in that space, but I, I loved children and I, I loved working with, with moms and babies when I was a visiting nurse. And the city of Detroit had at that time one of the largest infant mortality rates um, in the country. I think they were second at that time to Washington, D.C. The number of Black infants were dying three or four times the rate of, of other of other nationalities and races. And so something had to be done. And I saw this ad in the paper back then, they used to have a local news <laughs> paper <laughs> where they would post jobs. And I actually saw this position 
It was very far afield from oncology and just thought I'd put my name in the hat once, get my chops up and just get out there and just see what it would be like to interview because I, I hadn't interviewed for those previous roles. And uh, I got the job. I, I was the last candidate to, I, I drove my resume in, which then you, you drove things. You, you didn't just send them over the internet. I drove my resume in and I was 10 minutes before the deadline, which was at five o'clock. And I got called for an interview and by amazing grace, I got the job. And that's when I fell in love with public health because I had a joint appointment between the Detroit Health Department and the Wayne County Health Department. So I was reporting to two bosses to address infant mortality. And I, I just fell in love with working with communities, working with community organizations, working with the clients, understanding their issues, uh, just really trying to build a portfolio of practice that could reduce that infant mortality rate. And we did it. We did it for the first time in 30 years. Uh, we were able to work collaboratively with organizations, people working across sectors to reduce infant mortality, and we did it. So that's how I fell in love with public health. <laughs> That's fantastic. And I'm wondering, you know, what did that look like? Because you talk about, right, being the number two in the nation with Detroit and everything along those lines. What do you think was substantive about your ability to combat infant mortality? What did that look like as a process as a whole? That sounds really fascinating to be a part of. Well, you know, it was a lot of strain for the politicians as well as health officials to have that designation. Because if you think about infant mortality, it has traditionally been known as a way to measure the health of a community. If infants are you know, dying and dying prematurely, that means your community is not healthy. The future of the community is at risk. So that was a major, major pressure point for the politicians as well as other health officials. The process was, was quite dynamic. I, in all fairness, inherited a small number of agencies around 20 agencies who were kind of connecting the health systems, uh, some grassroots organizations were sort of coming together around this topic. Certainly local health department, the Wayne County Health Department, Detroit Health Department were at the table. And when I took on that role, the process was really about being very clear what the issues were for women, where were the, the points that made this a problem? And one of the big areas at that time was that Michigan, the state of Michigan has such a litigious environment where many OBGYNs just didn't want to practice here. The male practice insurance was extremely high. And one of the factors that was contributing to that was that women were coming into care so late. So the later you come into care, if you can come in during your first trimester of a pregnancy, you're, you're at lower risk than if you come in in second and third. And women were who had had babies all pretty much felt like, well, I've had a baby. I don't need to, you know, <laughs> I've got three kids, I, you know. And so just that awareness, lack of awareness that you're going to be, be harder for you to find a provider in your second trimester than it would be in your first. So we had to work this from every angle, from policy work. How can we support those providers who were saying we don't want to work in Michigan? 
to getting women in early for care so that they weren't in a high-risk environment, and then working with a group of partners to make sure that those partners could play a role in supporting women who needed to get into care. Because sometimes the reason why I don't go into care is I got other things to worry about, like food or shelter, or I got a domestic abusive partner. So building out that collaboration to include not just only health services, because if you really think about infant mortality, the clinical part of it is finding out you're pregnant, monitoring you to make sure the baby is growing, not a lot of intervention there, and then delivering that baby. And so we needed to figure out how do we make sure that stream of activity happened and what kind of partners do we need to make that happen? And um, that's what I did is just started unpacking that problem and then connecting with agencies who could fulfill and support some of those things that happen while I'm pregnant, (laughs) okay? Things that might keep me from going in for care And then I had the responsibility of designing programs that filled the gap. And one was transportation. At one time, Detroit had a really phenomenal bus system, but that declined. So women trying to get into care was also an issue. And I designed one of the nation's first transportation programs exclusively for pregnant women. And I'll be honest, I'll give full credit, a student actually designed the program a graduate student from the University of Michigan. So I, that's why I love graduate students because they're so brilliant. And I brought life to that program. It was when I got it, no one knew what to do with it. It was going to be funded by a major funder. And it was like, oops, this is a great idea. Now we got to bring it to life. So it was a lot of different activities and trying to pull them together to create the perfect storm of support for those women. And that's what I think we did. That's really exciting to hear about. I know that, you know, one of the continual problems that we're facing in NIO here is maternal mortality. So not exactly yes. infant mortality, but very similarly related. Did your experiences ever cross over into that? Because I know you, you mentioned a bit about transporting pregnant women and the mm-hmm. idea of, yeah, you know, I've had multiple kids. Yeah, I know how this goes. I've done this before, right. <laughs> but each kiddo is, each kiddo is different. You know, oh, that's just the difficulty yeah. with it. Yeah. What, what was your experience if you had any in that area? Well, interestingly enough, at that time, maternal mortality was relatively low. Our biggest issue at that time um, was maternal substance abuse. So we had a little heroin thing going on, crack cocaine thing going on in the city. So really trying to help women have a healthy baby was the priority. We just didn't have a lot of mothers dying. We had um, a lot of premature deliveries, which was contributing to the high infant mortality rate. But as you said, and you said in Iowa, uh, we're seeing an increase in that in Detroit now and across the country. So I didn't have a lot of experience with it, but I actually am now, you know, putting on the radar has gone up because something is going wrong here. If we have women who are dying in childbirth, that, that signals something is wrong. And we, we have to unpack that to try to understand what's going on. When you're unpacking those problems, how do you think that the nursing model experience 
really contributes to that. You know, you've got the public health side of things where you're getting that wide picture of how these different systems interact. But from a clinical perspective, for those folks who are in the clinical field, how do you think that helped influence your experiences in understanding public health better? Well, I do think that there is some value to the clinical because there's one thing to tell you about the vaccine, for example, COVID vaccine. There's another thing where I think the clinical allows you is to understand how that impacts the body and how do you support the whole person beyond the knowledge. Public health is is very good in assuring that we have good knowledge, good research, but trying to care for individuals is a whole different thing. So I just got a call from a colleague um, who said, I should say Zoom, not a call, from a a colleague who talked about her first vaccine. Now, this is a professional in public health who understood, based on her age group and her underlying condition that she needed to get the vaccine. After she got that first dose, she was under. I mean, it took her down. And that's where I think the clinical comes in, is that that ability to not only understand the knowledge around a vaccine and how it works, but understand how to care for the person is where I think the clinical comes in. It's it's one thing in the in the maternal maternal mortality space to know that women are dying and we can pull out the research and understand some of the topical reasons why. But the clinical allows you to get more into the physical care of that individual that goes a little bit deeper than just it's not only what we know, it's what we do and how we relate and how we eat, how we rest, those kinds of variables and and assessing those and being able to assess those at a different level than I think you can do without, you know, we need public health clearly, but I think nursing adds a different dimension to understanding what's going on with any of the issues that we see. I think it's, yeah, it's definitely one thing to create the intervention. And then it's another thing to put it into practice, right? And actually be the person either administering the vaccine, for example, or helping uh, coach a mom through the delivery of a baby and the subsequent stuff. You need that additional kind of boots on the ground experience a little bit, or at least seeing it, even if you're a public health student, at least seeing what this looks like seems critical, right? Right. It's a a natural partnership. And if you look historically, nurses actually, God bless Florence Nightingale, sort of invented public health nursing. I mean, they they invented public health practice, quite honestly. It emerged from, from that. We don't get a lot of credit for it, but Florence Nightingale went home to home, door to door in caring for people and not only caring for the person, but caring for their environment caring for their relatives in relationship to that person. And that's how nurses are taught. So I think it's a natural partnership when you have the strength of public health, which brings the science and the thinking and the right questions and positions them in a way that, and it creates ways in which we can get the information that we need in a palatable way. And then partnering that with clinicians um, really makes for a good ecosystem of well-being if we can if we can use it right. And I think the using it right thing is, is very critical. You know, now we're seeing a lot of 
concern about public health interventions being pitted against the economy, right? The idea of, uh, I want to be able to safeguard folks, but at the same time, there are people saying, you know, I got to make sure my business stays afloat. Otherwise, you know, what am I going to do? And we know that policy and governance is really critical in mitigating the spread of COVID-19, for example, but we'll have future pandemics as well. We'll have this same question come up. I'm thinking now, you know, how can we really balance these evidence-based policy-making decisions that we'd like to have happen. And then you've got this other court of, you know, there's the economic concerns of constituents, which are very real, rational things that also influence health as a whole. Well, it's a great question. Um, And there's a clear reality now, if never before, how inextricably linked health is to the economy. And so, you know, never before than now, it's clear that we have to be thinking differently uh, and that these two are not in silos, especially as we anticipate future pandemics or epidemics, which will come, they will come. What has been comforting though, is the amount of flexibility and creativity that people have been able to put into play to try to balance the two. Now, if I had to say as a public health professional where I think we we didn't do well is they can't be balanced all the time at the same level. So in the early months, had we really doubled down and just really put our nose to the grind and just to be salt of the earth in our approach for just a little bit longer, then we could have allow for the economy to move back faster and with a little bit more fervor. But we wanted to do both. And sometimes both cannot work. You may have to balance one over the other for a period of time. And I think what we did is we tried to juggle both. We wanted to have, you know, the the security and reduce the transmissibility of a very uh, virulent virus. And then we wanted money. <laughs> we wanted our businesses to thrive, which both are important, but they cannot, it's sort of like a marriage. If you're, if you're that strongly linked, there are times when one spouse has to kind of lift the load for a time, for whatever reason, it could be health, it could be financial, whatever. And you have to strike that misbalance for a time until you can come back into some balance. And I don't think we did that. And that's so germane to public health is this adaptability. And really that's that's the whole heart of science and cells is that we adapt. And so I just think the new way of thinking has to be more of an adaptable model that seeks to find the ways in which we weight one behavior or one activity over the other to get to the results we want. We were using not getting sick as a result and keeping money coming in as a result. And the result is not necessarily either or, it's both in a different way. So I just think we've got to come out of our traditional ways of thinking. And this has said this to us, this pandemic has said that to us more than anything I've ever seen and know that business and health are linked. I know there've been a lot of discussions of why do we need to partner with business? Well, if nothing else, now we see why, and we do need to partner. 
I think those partnerships you talk about are very critical. And one way that I've seen brought up is the idea of community health workers, right? And having mm-hmm. folks within the community who represent the community who can communicate these big picture public health concepts or our business leaders or our faith leaders or other folks like that, because they have such a big sway over folks in their neighborhoods, right? They have the ability to say, we need to be looking out for what's going on with COVID-19. We need to be looking out for our businesses as well. Here's some ways we can do this and using them as voices for especially underserved folks seems to be a critical way. And I'm wondering, you know, why didn't this happen as much that the community health worker side of things or recruiting people from communities to help this? Do you think it was more of a, a federal misguided situation or is it on the local communities? Did they have not enough resources to help each other out? What what could be improved next time something like this comes around? Ooh, well, I could say one thing with we <laughs> That's a really tough question. But one thing is if we have another pandemic, we all pray that it doesn't happen around election time. <laughs> because quite honestly, I I think people knew that what you're saying, that we should have some trusted voices and they should have been active. And I believe many of them were, the resources that were there were doing those things. But this took on a political sort of umbrella. And I I wonder, I've been reflecting on it a lot, that had we not been in a political, if we hadn't politicized it so much, would things have shifted better? And and while I'm saying this, there was a lot of politicalization of what happened around this pandemic, that alone, the ideology can shift the way people hear and how they respond to what they hear. And so I I don't have the answer to that one. You know, I, I just reflectively think that there was probably the politicalization of this pandemic. And, you know, people were using it as opportunity to assert certain values and certain ideas, which was not the right time. I mean, it was probably a very opportune time for people, but it was not the right time. And all of the things that people say about you know, maintaining my, my, my rights as a, as a free American, I agree with all of those things, but there, there's also a time. And this was, I did not see it as infringing on people's human rights to wear a mask, for example, just all of the conversations around, if I wear this mask, I'm not a free American. And I'm like, hmm, you haven't seen... <laughs> you haven't seen slavery, have you? We wear seatbelts, we wear shoes, we wear we wear shirts in restaurants, no shoes, no service. So why was this so profound of a of an issue? And that one, I think we'll be studying that one for the ages. And I know there's no simple answer. No, I, I agree. I think it's it's something that it, the the communications aspect is huge, right? And and getting it right not the first time but you know having that ability to change the science as it comes along right it's a continuously evolving process we evaluate what things look like and then we can change our minds and the ability to understand and recognize that seems critical and i want to i want to turn to you know you had talked about future solutions and what that looks like especially in the idea of hopefully we can depoliticize this hopefully we can move towards evidence-based policy making you know you you're 
you were recently appointed to this new Council on Climate Solutions. Mm -hmm. And the climate side of things also has kind of seen a similar unfortunate politicization of things, but there are real concerns that we're seeing now amid the pandemic. You know, in Iowa, we had our our derecho, we've seen other fires, we've seen what's going on with Texas. We've seen these occurrences of climate change happening. And now you're, you know, helping out with this council side of things in the short term. What do you think are reasonable, objective-based solutions to combat these big problems that we'll be facing Michigan? Well, I, I, that's another tough one that's probably bigger than my pay, pay level, but I would say we're doing some of the right things, and that is to constantly educate, constantly bring forth the science. And we always, and you know this as a public health professional yourself, is that we have to be able to adjust and um, the information that we share about certain things to people in certain ways. So they're not like two, two or three trains of thought to help people embrace what's happening in our climate. And for many years, we've sort of used things like the ozone and carbon and carbon footprint. And that works, I think, for a certain population of people. There are others that need to, to need to understand that this flood if we could show you how this flood and future floods are gonna happen or inclement weather is going to occur and what that means for you as an individual, because a lot of this stuff is it's just too big. It, it's too big for the average person to, to undertake. And I think we've got to tailor, talk, discuss and have dialogue. What I see often is sort of like you're in or you're out. And there's a gray area, and it's the gray area that we have to spend our energy on, where people know something's happened, but they don't know if it's just the good Lord just punishing us, which might be true, or is there something that I can do? Because even in that frame, people, there are things that you can do. And we just got to come at this in a multitude of ways. And it can't be, sometimes we get, get real heady with the issues and not saying that people are dumb, but what people change related to how things impact them personally. And sometimes they have to be forced to change, but we have to personalize the stories a little bit more and and try different ways of communicating and sharing information and sharing perspectives and not discounting a perspective. Like, you know, when people call people climate deniers, that's too general. And you and each person who says, ah, there's no climate change. We have to understand that. I mean, I don't think you can sell me if you don't understand why I'm objecting. I think that's very good because, you know, when I think about the communication, this kind of ties back into the mask situation too, but it's the idea of empowerment, right? Of the idea of I can do something about this. If it's something like, for example, the federal government is going to come in there and do something for me or things are happening to me. I think that a lot of folks don't like the idea of things are happening to me and I have no say in this kind of thing. If you phrase it as, you know, I can protect my community. I can protect my family. Here is something reasonable that I can do. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more palatable to folks and it's more effective to hear that instead of hearing negativity, which I think a lot of folks hear, unfortunately, right. on a daily basis. Right. Right? 
Yeah, I think you hit you hit a very important point there, Stephen, and that is everyone can do something. And and everyone doesn't have to do everything because they just aren't there yet. It's most like with most things, there's a continuum of people and we need to be able to get methods and information and opportunities for people to contribute, whether it's about climate change or not, it's just about earth, <laughs> okay? We wanna keep this, your space, your environment well. And yes, climate change, the changes in the climate is one thing that's making it unwell, but that's too big for me. What is keeping me and my family from being well? And how can I, how can you frame that? So I just think sometimes it's reframing and positioning it in a more relative way. We have to work on that. What are you seeing when it comes to other problems folks are facing in the public health scheme of things? You know, we, we've seen COVID-19, we've talked about the economy, we talked about climate change. What do you see evolving that is personal to people that they feel like they don't have power over right now and that they do actually do have power over, that they can change the health and well-being of their themselves or their community. What do you think is is around the corner aside from obviously the COVID nineteen pandemic, which dominates the airwaves? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like that question. I I don't know if I have the best answer though. But here here are two things that came to mind. So one thing that I can change and um, that we should have been doing all the time, and that's good hand washing. <laughs> you know, really dedicating ourselves to washing our hands, especially at certain times. And that one to me is a universal contribution to, to most, especially transmissible diseases. It's, you know, not everything, obviously, because there are some that transmit in a lot of different ways. But I just think if we could get people to wash their hands for 20 seconds, not do the cold water rinse and then run, the rinse and run, um, if we could get people to dedicate and believe that that is valuable and important. I, I am concerned about the, even the use of sanitizers and I can see them in there in certain situations. Uh, and I even see them sometimes in my doctor's offices, they come in and they just use, them. I'm like, well, maybe the water's right there and it's soap and water. Why, you know, why are you using this stuff? And I, I believe in it, you know, but I think in the long term, so we have to be thinking about certain our behaviors now and how in the long term they could affect us. Uh, and, and I'm just, that one is, that, that one bothers me because uh, we're, we're washing away some good stuff and we're over, we're over utilizing that. And I don't know if that's the question you're answered, but there was another thing that I think people can can help do. And that is one of the challenges that we've seen, even with this pandemic, that really surfaced is the erosion of the public health system. And the public health system is relatively quiet, but what they do is mighty. They keep us safe from making sure that our water, our food, the restaurants we eat in are safe. And if you've watched what's happened to local public health and public health and communities, there's been just a constant erosion of resources. Those places where folks really struggled, even with the pandemic, were places who just were just trying to stay afloat with the basic services they could provide, but were not prepared and ready to take on something like this. That's why we are hearing people saying they're tired and they've just been drained by this work because they haven't had the manpower. 
And that's that's our taxpayers' dollars that pay for for most of this. And I, I think this is where people could make a change is to really stand up and advocate for that vital anchor resource in the community because it's what we're going to need. It's, it's obviously running on full gear currently. And this will happen again, all right? And they need to be ready and prepared. And that lack of readiness is to get our public health infrastructure ready to get the workforce ready. I mean, people like you who are, who are getting the skills to go out there, you're probably gonna go to the hospital and make big money. <laughs> but we need to build up that infrastructure. And that is, uh, that's the citizen's resource. That's every citizen, not just the poor, it's every citizen's resource for safety, for well-being. And I just believe that there's a role that average Joe can play in advocating to make sure that that resource is available, well-staffed, and have the infrastructure that they need, the technology to continue to serve communities and keep them as safe as they have been. I think those are the both really good points. You know, one of the ones I take away from the pandemic is the idea of now I just want to wear a mask during the winter time so I don't have to deal with the cold side of things. I've yes. fortunately avoided that for now. <laughs> so I'm grateful for that. Yeah. And washing the hands probably too. <laughs> um, but you 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 know, you make an excellent point about recognizing the importance of public health. You know, we've we've obviously seen that catapulted during the pandemic, but even, you know, doing you know, research and, and literature into it, you know, the funding for public health in the country is, is dipped dramatically. And, and, you know, while the funding structures are what they are, one of the other things I always think about is, is the next generation side of things. You know, I'm and, you know, my other colleagues are in the field of public health right now, but we've got folks who are in high school and putting myself in those shoes, uh, you know, going to the nursing side of things. I want to be a community health nurse mm-hmm. for the younger generation to really considering what public health means and what public health can do because it's it can take you so many different places you've got the nursing career and and whatnot Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i i agree and and those are the recommendations that are coming out that we (laughs) we really have to look at the pipeline for public health in the next couple of years many health departments will lose anywhere from 40 to 50% of their workforce, because these are people who have dedicated their careers to being there. And, and they're just going to lose a lot of the workforce through attrition. And I think we got to grow the next generation of public health leaders. I came through, and to a certain extent, even you, you were, you kind of came through with a certain frame of operating. But I think this is a new, we've got to really rethink the new. And I'm noticing that in a lot of schools, particularly those that have undergraduate programs, we have a lot of young people who are interested in the profession. But how do we steer them to public health, local public health? It has its benefits. Not you don't go into government service to make money. You go in to serve. And it should be, you're going to hate this, it should be required (laughs) of every graduate to spend so many years in that service. Because what it does is it positions you for so many other things because you have a grounding of every, if you're in the policy space, you can see whether your best ideas around policy really made a difference or not. And that's where I think we have a disconnect is that we end up sending people with high credentials to places who've never seen the impact of what they, decisions they make, the information, the recommendations they make how they play out on the ground. 
And so I just think that exposure and many schools of public health don't do that. You, you know, it's an extracurricular class. It should be a required class that you spend time and maybe you know, really two classes that you spend time engaging in local public health work. I, and I completely agree with that. You know, I, I got out of my undergraduate career and, and, you know, one of the first things I did was I went, was in EMT for a year working on an ambulance and I got to go around and see a whole different side of healthcare that you don't see in an mm-hmm. academic care setting. I had volunteered in a couple of different other places and those experiences that I was able to achieve outside of the academic setting were invaluable because they helped inform me what public health looks like on the ground when it actually is employed and you can bring that perspective into eventually when you get into your further on part of your career what does this actually look like in practice you know have I been the person who delivers you know a senior citizen back to their home you know do I know what that transportation looks like do I know what this sense is you know and it's very important to have that skill at multiple levels at all levels you know because that, that gives you a better perspective on, on your decisions mm-hmm. and on the policy decisions and the, on the advocacy points. I think the beauty of what you did as an EMT is that you got to go into homes. So, you know, you, it's not just the person and what we do with that individual, it's their environment. All of that affects their well-being and, and being able to see that is just there's nothing like it in the world to, to help you gain a better perspective and realistic perspective on how change happens, how health occurs or not. It was it was an eye-opening couple of years, that's for sure. Oh, I bet, I bet. <laughs> I want to, you know, by being mindful of our time, you know, one, one thing we always do want to ask folks too is, you know, you look back at your career and you've had all these excellent opportunities, you've been across many different sectors. What's, and if you had to narrow it down, What's one thing that you thought you knew, but were later wrong about? Oh, one thing that I knew, thought I knew. I would have to say is that things that I thought I knew and knew well, topically, I did not know substantively. (laughs) So that experience over time really fleshes out things that you think you know. And my favorite one is, uh, as a nurse, we're taught to assess. And I think of most professionals, we assess and we decide what you need based on some data. And what I learned more specifically is the importance of the voice of the people you serve and how that can really alter your thinking, and that the way you may have been trained to think about things systematically (laughs) is just not real, that life is much more a spiraling circle than it is a straight line. And so I just say, if I had to say, I learned the power of the voice of people that we really weren't taught. We We were taught to rely on our own understanding the own, our own depth of knowledge, but the, the real knowledge and service is from the people who are experiencing what you're seeing and hearing their interpretation of what, because we can all, we can terribly be wrong, you know, and, and knowing that you can be wrong and very, very wrong. 
I think there's definitely that humility that comes with it, right? Is is that idea of you know you will be wrong eventually. You will uh, be wrong, and then and yeah, and that's right. And no matter how smart you are, you you're you're gonna be wrong. <laughs> yeah, it's just it comes and it comes with the field, and it 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 adds to your ability to get better, right? And having those experience of getting folks' voices really augments your ability to be a better public health professional, right? You take that into every other situation you deal with. Absolutely. I think that, you know, it's, it's one of my favorite things about public health is the ability to interact with so many different folks and hear their experiences. And that way, when you are creating something, whether it's, you know, novel, like the, the, the you know, creating the transportation side of things for, for pregnant folks, you're gathering those experiences and you know that you're doing what you can for that community. You know, because you've talked with folks and you understand. Believing that the expertise doesn't come from just from the academy. Mm-hmm. That um, people forget sometimes when they're working in communities, particularly poverty communities. And I, I, I think I might have come in like that, too. I, I had it all. I knew it all. But recognize that there's, there's experience in communities. There are credentialed people in communities who just chose to be there and had some circumstance that that put them in a place where you needed to serve them, but doesn't mean that they don't have some agency and sometimes more than you have. It's just that there are barriers in the system that keep them from acting on that power that they, they normally have. So I, 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 could, I could do a whole podcast on things I thought I knew that I learned. So that was just the one, one or two that came to mind. And I appreciate the question so much. Yeah, I, I appreciate you talking about the, the agency and power within communities, because I think that's something that we gloss over sometimes in the academia side of things. And then you get to the real world experience and it's, oh, my gosh, this is a completely different set of skills that I've now got to learn. And so your yeah. ability to tap into that throughout your careers is really fantastic to hear about. And I, I want to thank you so much for, for coming on today and talking with us about all of those wonderful experiences you've had. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Great questions. I really enjoyed it. And I hope that I shared something that will be useful to your audience. That's it for our episode this week. Big thanks to Dr. Meadows for coming on with us today. This episode was hosted and written by Steve Sanye and edited and produced by Alexis Clark. You can find more about the University of Iowa College of Public Health on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Music, and SoundCloud. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your colleagues. Our team can be reached at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. This episode is brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Thank you and stay healthy.